This is Women's Leadership Success, episode number 117. Do you like to address problems head-on, or do you sweep them under the rug? How you adapt to problems and change can have a profound impact on your career, business, and life. So how do you develop an attitude that welcomes change? How does your ability to generate new ideas help your career? And what type of ideas lead to innovation and new solutions? Join me today as I talk to Lorraine Marchand, one of the top female innovators of startups and Fortune 500 corporations. We will discuss how to develop an innovation mindset that will help you increase your value to your company and maybe even lead to some breakthrough innovations in a changing world. And I'd like to give a special shout out to a couple of longtime listeners, Casey Calvetti in Nashville, Tennessee, and Andrea Horvath in Vancouver, British Columbia. Thanks for being longtime listeners and for contacting me. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Brom and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life. No matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur, join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. So um, this is Women's Leadership Success, and today I'm thrilled to interview Lorraine Marchand. She is the Executive Managing Director of Meritive, formerly IBM Watson Health. Welcome. Thank you, Sabrina. It's my pleasure. And you've written a great book, The Innovation Mindset, and I'd like you to just tell us a little more about your background, and then I have a story I want you to share with us. So tell us more about your background. Oh, sure. Well, I think that, um, you know, my background has really been in corporate entrepreneurship, as well as startup and smaller company entrepreneurship. So I consider myself someone who started innovating at a very young age. I can share a story with the audience about what inspired me, if you wish. I do and, want you to share that story. I love oh, that story. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, and so I've just had an opportunity to uh, to do my work and to bring new products and services and ideas to market across corporations and startups where I've been the co-founder, smaller entities as a coach, a mentor, and uh, a professor of students. So my goal and my mission really is to enable innovation and entrepreneurship to help to create an ecosystem where people can get the resources and the access that they need to be successful because I want everybody that has an idea that is inspired to try to bring it to market to have an opportunity to do that because I just think it's one of the most, one of the best things about life. I totally agree with you. And we have something in common. You said your father was an inventor and my grandfather lived with us when I grew up and he was an inventor. So that, you know, that kind of thinking was going on, but tell the story about what happened when you were a little kid uh, with your dad in the restaurant 
So my dad was a serial inventor at the time. We didn't really have the word innovation yet because, of course, inventing was all about intellectual property and trademark and copyright secrets. And innovation now is about different kinds of incremental improvements or even process improvements that all can have an impact on the commercial market. So he was more of an inventor. Mm -hmm. And growing up, when uh, my brother and I were growing up, my dad would always challenge us to find at least three solutions to every problem we encountered. And sometimes he'd create problems for us to solve. And one summer when I was 13 and my brother was 10, he took us to the Hot Chops Cafeteria, which was a franchise of diners in the Baltimore, Washington area. And our challenge as we sat in the big red vinyl booths, enjoying our breakfast of orange juice and scrambled eggs in the morning for three days in a row, was to observe what was slowing down table turnover. So we had marble composition books, We had three color pens. We each had a stopwatch and we wrote down what we observed. We even talked to the waitresses and the bus boys. We timed activities. And after three days, we found out what the problem was. And interestingly, it was these pesky sugar packets because people would notoriously come into the diner dispense the sugar in their coffee or their iced tea, throw the packet on the table, the granules spewed everywhere. And it was taking many extra minutes for the busboys and the waitresses to clean that up and get new customers into the booth. But my dad didn't let us stop there because he was the man of three solutions. So then he guided us through a process of identifying three solutions. So we came up with things like, well, why don't we use liquid sugar? Or why don't we put a trash can over here? But the solution that we ended up taking to prototype was actually an item that we called the sugar cube. And it was a plastic receptacle. It held the packets on one side, the discarded refuse on the other. But to make sure that it had value beyond just being a container, because my dad was always thinking, it had four sides. So people could put advertising in it from the local advertisers. We spoke with the head manager. She actually loved the product. She loved the idea. She introduced us to the district manager. The uh, prototype went on to become produced. And uh, within about six months, our sugar cubes were all throughout the uh, Hot Chops cafeteria system in the Baltimore, Washington area. Wow. That's, That's incredible. And you were how old? 13. 13. What a great start. You know, um, having read your book, and I do uh, coaching in companies, and what I find is there's seems to be a lot of people that don't have an innovative mindset or are not able to think out of the box. And I'm, I'm one thing I wonder why is that, and how do we begin to develop it? Well, that is a great question. And, you know, if I can just hearken back to what I learned from that story with my dad, it was that he he really inculcated in us an insatiable curiosity, always asking questions, never being satisfied with the status quo. So I think curiosity is critical. He 
also imbued in us uh, a desire for change. Change was good, making progress, making things better. So we embraced change. And it was all about a problem-solving orientation, as I mentioned. And so we developed a passion for problem-solving. So to me, those three components make up the innovation mindset, the insatiable curiosity, the passion for problem-solving, and the embracing of change. And I think that in corporations, because they are designed for repeat, for scale, for systematizing things, for process so that they can replicate it better, faster, a lot of times these really important characteristics and behaviors, they end up getting washed out or diluted within the corporate environment and within the corporate culture. And I think it's an unintended consequence of being a, a really high producing corporation is that you wash this out because what happens is, you know, in your coaching, I'm sure too, it's the corporations that come to consultants that read books like mine and other books that you've profiled and say, I really do want the people in my organization to be more creative, to embrace innovation, to bring new ideas to the fore. And how do I encourage them to do that? So in a way, they've created their own problem with all the very components that make a corporation successful. But now we've got to get back to how do we have that balance of a corporation that performs well for shareholders, mm -hmm. but one that can also really embody the culture and the mindset of innovation. So what's, what is the way to do that? How do we do that? Well, I think that curiosity has to be encouraged. And I think problem solving has to be encouraged. I think change has to be encouraged. So these are important values. They are important ways of working. And in when I, in my work with corporations, I really start with an understanding of the culture and of the values. I'm working with a large pharmaceutical company right now. Mm -hmm. And a value is curiosity. Be your own boss bring change forward. So I think those those have to be embodied in the culture very early on, but that's at the highest level of the organization, as you know, where it has to start. But then it has to be pulled through and it's going to be up to the leaders, the leaders of department, the leaders of teams. They have to welcome the change. They have to try to encourage it. And I think one of the big ways to do this is to make it okay to fail. And I don't really like the word fail. Like in my book, I talk about the fact that you're never failing. You're always pivoting if you're constantly learning and improving. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to use the, the word fail in this, in this instance, mm -hmm. because innovation has to be about trial and error. Sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you don't. You always pick up the pieces and move in a new direction. But if in a corporation, the leader doesn't allow you to experiment and for sometimes those experiments not to work out as planned, then people will get discouraged and they will think that trying and not being successful isn't an option. So we have to make it okay to fail. And for example, I love the way um, Jeff Bezos has talked about this at Amazon, where he actually created an incentive system 
that encouraged failure because he knew that if people were failing, they were probably trying more. And I believe that it's probably one of the reasons that Amazon is considered to have an innovative culture because they encourage people to try and to fail and then to learn from those mistakes. Beautiful. Uh, one of the things I actually had a client earlier today, a brand new person, and she and I asked her what was her what was the biggest problem if she solved it would change her career, and she said, "I don't have any time to do anything." And you know what I said is, unless you find a way to carve some out, there's no way to really grow your career. But it seems like we don't leave time for people to brainstorm or come up with solutions. Uh, most of the meetings I've been in recently, it's almost like we're, we're, we've got to come up with the answer to the problem right away. And there's no, no space for kind of checking things out or um, trying on different hats. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's absolutely right. I, Coming up with ideas, brainstorming solutions, it's very thoughtful work, and it happens best when we have an opportunity to be reflective and feel creative and and we we can and we have to disconnect, right? We have to disconnect from the busy machine that programs every moment of our day and has us so much of the time in list checking mode. And we've got to be able to sequester some of that time to really do some some conscious and some deliberate thinking. And I have seen companies that encourage this. I've had bosses that encouraged it. For example, uh, in one company that I worked in, uh, we had meeting and video free uh, during COVID Fridays. And, you know, Fridays at noon, everybody was supposed to unplug. And that was your time to be thoughtful, creative, think about the week, not do your expense report, like don't fill it with more busy work that you didn't get to earlier in the week. It was really meant for you to just take time, unplug, get with colleagues, think and be creative. And, and she went so far as to ask people for just a little light report. You know, how did you use the time? What was valuable about it? Did you come up with anything interesting? Because she really wanted to make sure that people were using those four or five hours that she was helping them build into the week for exactly what they were designed for, disconnecting, being reflective and thoughtful about problems they were facing in the workplace or solutions or other things that they wanted to work on. So unfortunately, we live in such a busy state of uh, professionalism that we do have to program some of that free time in. Yeah, we have to we have to leave the space. Yeah. Either individually or in the company for sure. Um so say more about the process of generating new ideas. <clears throat> well, so I'm a big believer that we first have to start with a very solid well-defined problem statement. And again, I think that this first stage of the process is also something that people need to train themselves to do better. Uh, we can just be on such autopilot day in and day out that we're not looking around and even observing problems that are right in front of our faces, things that need to be solved that we just have become immune to them. So it starts with becoming more observant 
about the problems in our workplace, in our schools, in our neighborhood, in science, medicine, et cetera, making sure that you're a student of observing them. It's also important to make sure when you're observing a problem that it's actually happening in a repeated fashion. It's not just a one-off. And in order to encourage people to do more problem observation, which I think is the beginning of ideation and the innovation process, Mm -hmm. I actually recommend keeping a journal. Now, this could be a little list on your iPad or your iPhone today, but I've made it a habit for a great many years every day to try to observe three problems, just like my dad taught me. I've never strayed from that. And I'll write them down. And sometimes they're inane and sometimes they're really big things. But when I have my problem journal, then I'm able to look back at different points of time. And sometimes I see something that's flow, that flowed into work and that I actually want to work on. So it's got to start with a well-defined problem statement. What is the problem? Who's experiencing it? What's significant about it? What pain is it cost, causing? Asking those right kind of questions around the problem. And then I do believe in the uh, in the three solutions. And why do you need three? Well, first of all, Doing nothing is a solution. I mean, doing nothing is a choice. So that's already one. Okay. And, then you, you, and then you need to come up with at least two others so that you can do some comparison and contrast. And I just think that if you have a set of three solutions to evaluate against each other, the one that wins will have been compared and contrasted against the other two for fit, right? Because your solution has to be the best fit. So that process of ideating solutions and then choosing the one for for best fit is really important. And then I think that kind of leads us to the how. And we use the term brainstorming. We can use a lot of different words to talk about how we get there. I like methods that involve storytelling. Having spent a lot of my career in the healthcare field, it's not hard to tell a story about a patient or a caregiver, a physician. And we can learn a lot about the problem and solutions that are gonna fit through storytelling. And there are any number of other methodologies that can be used. You can do it in your own head, you can do it with other people, but I also think that you need to use some kind of brainstorming methodology to get those plethora of ideas out there and then to use that selection process of going from three to one. Beautiful. And I want to mention that in your book, you have a lot of, uh, in every chapter, there's usually some questions you can ask at the stage you're at, which are great questions. But your stories are so great. Can you share a story of somebody that innovated something and and tell us what happened? Well, sure. I, and I've got uh, about eight innovators in focus in the book. So I've done profiles on Real life innovators, people just like you and me that have observed problems and created solutions and, uh, and their experiences. And, you know, one of them that I really like is, uh, Sarah Apgar. And Sarah was a Princeton graduate. Uh, she was also in the military and she was a volunteer firefighter. And she was really big on fitness, given her background. Mm-hmm. And she had the idea of using something that she created at the fire station. It was a steel hose. And she fashioned it into a piece of fitness equipment. And the beauty of it is if you're 
working from home like we were in COVID and Mm -hmm. you didn't want to put in a full gym. She designed a whole set of exercises that you could use with this one piece of fitness equipment. But Sarah had a lot of naysayers in her experience and in her network. And she was young when she did this. She pushed them aside. She knew she had an idea. She was on Shark Tank. She raised $250,000 in order to bring the fit fighter to market. And um, it's just, you know, spreading like uh, wildfire, so to speak, across the country. And she's been phenomenally successful. And I just really love the story because it's just that simplicity of, you know, right in my own environment, a need, a problem, an observation about parts that I had right under my nose and how I was able to create something, bring it to market, and now create an entire company and an entire market within the fitness industry around it. Beautiful. Let me ask you a very personal, real question. Your willingness to address this question and your answer could mean the difference between doubling or more your income in the next year. Do you consider yourself a high-potential female executive who seeks more recognition, income, and influence? Someone who aspires to the C-suite or higher? Or maybe you seek a whole new opportunity, either internally or externally with a new company. But somehow you feel stuck. Or maybe you're not recognized for your hard work and are getting passed over for promotion. Or you just need a new strategy to help you advance your potential and your income. The demand for high potential female executives that earn top salaries and profit sharing opportunities has never been higher. But if you don't know how to stand out from the crowd, attract your champions, navigate organizational politics, or lack confidence to ask for what you want, you may be left behind or miss out on some great opportunities. If you can relate to any of these core executive development questions or challenges that may be holding you back, I've got some good news for you. For many years, I've been an executive coach and management consultant. One of the most rewarding aspects for me as a champion of women's leadership is helping women like you have more influence, impact, and income in business and life. I've had phenomenal success helping women advance their careers and radically increase their income, especially in STEM and tech, when previously they had been stuck or sidelined. That is why I'm inviting you to apply for my executive coaching package for high potential women to help you stand out from the crowd, turbocharge your career, and radically increase your income. Warning, this turbocharge your career is not for everyone. It's not an overnight transformation. But if you are a focused, high potential woman leader willing to invest in yourself and follow my proven strategies to advance your leadership and career, you'll be amazed at what we can accomplish together. I invite you to book a free discovery coaching session with me right away because I can only take a limited number of people a year for this special package. 
So I invite you to reach out to me via my contact page on womensleadershipsuccess.com so we can connect and see if we're a good match. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Um, What do serial entrepreneurs, what can they do to increase their odds of success? Yes. Well, I love this one because to me, it's all around de-risking their product, the marketplace, the commercial potential. And so what I like to talk about here is there are so many different ways to de-risk. You need to de-risk your technology so that you can eliminate any uh, technical error. So there are very There are very practical ways that you can do that in terms of the design of your technology. Other ways that you can de-risk would be marketplace risk. If you have the right kind of market intelligence, you understand the competition, you're keeping eyes on the landscape, you're doing regular customer research, you can certainly de-risk from a marketing and a marketplace standpoint so that you know that your solution is what the market needs at that particular time and that there are no reasons or external constraints why it might be rejected. You can also financially de-risk. And so a really important area for any entrepreneur is the ability to raise capital and being able to raise capital in such a way that will give you running lane for some period of time as you get your company up and running and you go through the different iterations of your product and and working your way to success, you definitely need capital. So there are ways to de-risk financially. And then finally, you need to de-risk from an operational standpoint. And what I mean by that is when you're running your business, you need to have a solid handle on your business operations. And so you can de-risk by having the right kind of talent, the right kind of processes and workflows in place, the right kind of IT and system and management programs in place. So I I do talk in the book around a whole risk matrix where you can evaluate these different risks that you might be facing as you bring your solution to market and then ways that you can mitigate each of those risks in order to improve your chances of commercial success. I think uh, that just that conversation alone is worth buying the book. Um, the whole thing of de-risking, what a great thing. You also, just to end up, you were talking about some of the problems that women have in terms of getting their products to market. And um, I have a, a relative that started a faux cheese company who's ex- doing quite well, but has had a lot of problems getting funding and different things. So what's your experience with that and what do you suggest? Yeah, so I have a lot of passion around helping women entrepreneurs. And, you know, what I have found at at like a macro level is that women still only represent about five to seven percent of venture capitalists. I think that's a problem. We need more women investors because Uh when we have women investors, women investors are going to take a second look at a woman entrepreneur and consider possibly investing in her helping her along, providing more resources. There are some great examples of some VCs that are run by women investors and invest in women, and they're having phenomenal results. The other thing that I've noticed in terms of women is 
a lot of times they are intimidated about raising capital. Maybe they're not feeling real comfortable with their financial acumen. Maybe they don't feel as though they can ask the smartest questions when they're sitting with an investor. There are definitely ways that women can increase and improve their financial competency and aptitude with practice, with the right kind of mentors, and they can they can be much more astute and effective that way. And then the, the, the third thing is women need to think more strategically about their own networking. And, you know, what we found is that women tend to network with other individuals with whom they feel comfortable, uh, people in their ecosystem or in the same job class or friends. And they might not feel so comfortable going to a networking event where there are attorneys and bankers and accountants and other kinds of individuals that when you think about it, you know, the legal and the financial aspects of getting a business up and running, those are really important operational partners. And women may not feel as comfortable networking with those kinds of individuals. So they are cutting themselves short of some really valuable resources that are important in terms of getting your company up and running and just making sure you have the right kind of guidance as you go through the process of raising capital and managing the business and, and hiring new staff. So I think those the financial and the networking are definitely two areas where I know women can improve. And I have some examples of that in the book as well. Right. So we're just about done. Is there what last piece of advice do you want to leave the audience with? I do not want you to have any fear. Do not fear failure. If you believe that this is something that you need to do, then you have to do it. It's like that itch that you've got to scratch. And if you don't do it, you're going to go through your life regretting it and thinking about it. So make a calculated bet, of course. But I say, if this is something that you want to do, do it. And I've tried to lay it out in a very simple and straightforward way with the stages or the laws. There's a lot of mentors and help available to you. So just get out there and do it. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Sabrina. It's been my pleasure. Action for Traction. Listening to a podcast or reading Lorraine's book is a good start, but the way you will change and grow yourself is to take small actions every time you have an aha from what you have heard or read. Here are three possible actions you might consider. One, keep a journal of problems that you notice. Two, get a group together and brainstorm the problem. Remember to defer judgment, generate ideas quickly, and no explanations, just keep the ideas coming. And three, brainstorm at least three solutions. Hey, keep listening. If you like this show and want to learn more on how to be a transformational leader, I have a special offer for you in just another minute. Thanks for following me on LinkedIn for more leadership tips. And I really appreciate you sharing, liking, and giving me a review in iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Remember, if you consider yourself a current or future high-potential female executive that wants to have influence, impact, and radically increase your income, I invite you to reach out to me on my contact page, 
womensleadershipsuccess.com so we can connect. I sincerely hope my discussion with Faisal on how to be a transformational female leader in times of enormous change and disruption has gotten you thinking. It certainly has changed my thinking. I was very touched when Faisal shared his commitment to donate all the proceeds from his new five-part online class based on his book, To Cancer Research. I've started this course, and it looks really good. And to thank you for being one of my loyal listeners, Faisal is offering us a gift of 50% off your order. This is $149 savings. To sign up for Faisal's class, just go to www.womensleadershipsuccess.com forward slash lift. This URL will redirect you to his course information page, class overview videos, and the link to start the class. Use the coupon code WLS at checkout to save 50%. And for your information, I don't make anything from your purchase, just the good feeling knowing that you are supporting cancer cures, saving money, and getting support and information from a great thought leader and mentor like Faisal. Lastly, be sure to check out my Action for Traction for this episode in the show notes at womensleadershipsuccess.com. You will get three quick and easy tips based on this interview to help you truly be a transformational leader. Bye for now. See you soon. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brahm, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.